May we stand together at Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning till midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for that purpose. And before him at his right hand there were six tribal leaders and on the left there were seven. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people For he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You may be seated. There's a striking custom in Navajo culture. A newborn is watched over constantly until the child laughs for the first time. This moment marks the little one's birth as a social being. And the person who made the baby laugh holds a celebration in honor of the child. The capacity to laugh and to express joy is an evidence of the image of God in us. What's your response to this great statement by Dallas Willard? You'll not understand God until you understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. Now that's our God. And that being so, you would expect, wouldn't you, the Bible to be a book of joy. The term joy or joyful is found no fewer than 250 times in the Old and New Testaments. If anybody's counting, there are 13 Hebrew terms and 27 related terms that convey the idea of joy, of celebration, of exuberance. One of those dynamic terms is in verse 10. Do not sorrow, Nehemiah says to the people, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We sang that a few moments ago. 
In Scripture and in church history, joy is inseparable to revival. Now, we saw that revival was not a series of scheduled meetings in the fall and in the spring as many of us grew up. But spiritual revival is a personal encounter with God. You know, sometimes the father delights in doing the unexpected. Rodney Gypsy Smith was a well-known evangelist in the latter part of the 19th century and into the, the 20th century. Born in a tent in a gypsy camp, uh, Gypsy did not have one opportunity to go to school one day. But self-taught and despite his disadvantages, God used Gypsy Smith to lead thousands of people to Christ. Gypsy often gave one formula for revival. Take a piece of chalk and draw a circle on the floor. Get inside the circle. When the one inside the circle has gotten thoroughly right with God, revival has come. Through history, church history, revival has had a number of distinct marks. When revival comes, for example, love for Jesus is rekindled. There's a new appetite, a new passion for spiritual things, for the things of God. There's a passion for sharing the good news with others. The wall around Jerusalem is now complete, and Nehemiah fades from the story. The first person, I, meaning Nehemiah, is found 83 times in chapters 1 through 7. Guess what? It isn't found a single time in chapter 8. People occurs 13 times in verses 1 through 12 of this chapter. All the people nine times. Now, what's the point? In this great Old Testament revival, God is up to something in, among, and through his people. With a completed wall, you would expect a grand celebration. Now, that will come eventually, but there's no celebration yet because the people sense that for the first time in generations, they have security. For the first time, they have real peace. But there is something missing, a vital reality of the presence and the sense of God. What good is security? What good is prosperity and peace if you have no sense of his leading, guiding, and using you to make a difference? That's revival. Now, keenly aware of the spiritual status quo, the people as one man, as one voice, Say to Ezra the priest, bring the book. In Martin Luther's time, the people said, bring the book, and Reformation fire ignited. This is a wall in Geneva, Switzerland, memorializing the Reformation 
that transformed Europe. Now, for a sense of proportion, you see a guy standing there. You don't often get that view of him, but if you look closely, I suspect you know that guy taking a picture. Would you be shocked if I told you one of the four greats of the Protestant Reformation uh, is John Calvin? This was so significant that in secular Geneva today, you have the remnants of the great Reformation. Um, There are other remnants of that around the city. Revival often occurs in the presence of opposition, even persecution. In John Wesley's time in Britain, they said, bring the book. And revival swept like a prairie fire across Britain. On this side of the Atlantic, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on a Sunday afternoon. It wasn't in the church he pastored in Northampton, but a few miles away. He pulled out of his saddlebag a sermon he had preached to his own church recently. That sermon is titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that sermon was used mightily of the Holy Spirit to spark the first great awakening. By the way, Jonathan Edwards was so determined to stay out of the way of the Holy Spirit that he never looked up. He read that sermon word for word from a manuscript. This is a people-led revival. It is they who take the initiative. Ezra is simply responding to their vision, to their spiritual thirst. The focal point is the word. Now, what comprised the word in, uh, in Ezra's day? It wasn't Matthew through John. It's called the book of the law, actually Five books, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. In verse 3, the text literally says, he read in it. That is, select parts. How about this? It happened at the water gate, not the temple, implying that the word was greater than even the temple with its sacrifices and its altar. The word was for everyone. Verse 2, men, women, and all those who could hear with understanding. Now, where were the children? Where do you think they were who were too young to understand? This is the biblical authority for children's church and a nursery right here. I tell you, if nobody appreciates children's church and a nursery, and we all do, it is the preacher. We appreciate and we thank you who serve, and those who are serving this morning. Our granddaughters still miss our children's ministry badly. They talk about it from time to time. Thank God for all of you. The service lasted from five to seven hours. Look at verse 3 again. You see the phrase, the morning? It literally means the light. So the reading of the word now, picture this in your mind. It is from daybreak to midday. In honor and respect for the word, when Ezra opened the scroll, as one, the people stood up. 
This occasion has prompted Jews through the century to stand when the word is read, whether they are in a temple or in synagogues scattered around the world. The inference is that they remain standing the entire time. Now, that would be problematic for some of us, perhaps, right? Especially in a five- or six-hour service. When's the last time you were in one of those? But even today in Eastern Orthodox churches, people stand through the entire service. Uh, This is a Russian Orthodox church outside of Moscow. Look through the doors. There are no chairs. The people stand, and the men remove their hats. We were in several of the services in the Moscow and the Golden Ring area, and you know, I would get so infatuated with what was going on that I would put my cap on, my West Virginia Mountaineer cap that I wear wherever I go. And uh, I would, you know, I would just, I would just be studying it. And I just, and somebody would, you know, I look, oh, I'm sorry. I'd take my hat off and, you know, four or five minutes, I'd, (laughs) I bet they went home saying that crazy Americans, they were in our service today at church. But standing in honor, in reverence of, of the word. The great awakening at the water gate began with a call to hear the word and ends with the people on their faces worshiping God. Aren't you struck with the balance of their worship? The ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Notice first, there is the intellectual element. Worship is thinking. It isn't shifting your mind into neutral it isn't putting together your grocery list it isn't thinking about now what do I need to do on Monday and on Tuesday worship has content it isn't emotional frenzy there's the thinking element to worship then the service was marked by expressive worship after Ezra Uh, led the people in a prayer of praise. Notice, he blessed the Lord and the people said, we've already done this a number of times this morning. Amen, amen. I'm gonna call our worship and music pastor, Brother Amen. (laughs) If you're from a high church or a liturgical background, it's amen, amen, right? Or if you're Romanian, it's amen, amen, (laughs) An expression of affirmation, of desire that God would act accordingly as the person who says amen is placing themselves under the authority of the word being read and preached. It has the idea of may it be so, do it Lord. I love the message here, the paraphrase, it states it as oh yes, yes. Amen is a distinctive part of Jewish worship as well through the centuries and, and a trademark of the church. I love a story one guy told. He said, my brother said, amen, after dinner grace one night. And one of his children asked what amen meant. 
Before he or his wife could respond, their five-year-old answer, it means sinned. I like that. Do you? Sin. They lifted up their hands, another integral part of Jewish worship. And by the way, with the head not bowed, but pointing toward heaven. So, not like this, like this. Let's do this, okay? Someone, would you do that for a second? Do this, do this with me, would you? Okay. Uh, this is not being videoed. You're safe, all right? Um, okay. What, what does this signify? I want you to think of the Jewish community. It signifies uh, dependence upon God, an acknowledgement of a need of blessing, and anticipation of God's presence in meeting the need. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Remember what Paul wrote? And lifting up holy hands. Now imagine this scene amid the resonance of amens and a sea of uplifted hands. Like a wave, the people bow to the ground. A symbol of humility and submission before God. Biblical worship that blesses God and the worshiper is balanced worship. Jesus said the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit, small s, and in truth. Worship is first and foremost internal, a matter of the heart, not external ceremonies and traditions. The truth is, my friends, it is possible to attend church all of your life. And never truly worship God. Their worship was marked by action, application. Verse 9, they acknowledged their sin. They repented. They wept. I think this is a good juncture. It's a good juncture in the message and in the text. And I think it's a good juncture in our history to do some honest evaluation this morning. It's a great opportunity to do that. As you were looking at your listening guide on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being, wow, how are we doing? First, in the area of intellect. Are we cognitive in worship? When you come week by week, are you getting to know God better? Are you learning something from the text Are you learning Scripture in the context of the Scriptures, which is so missing today? Mr. Spurgeon talked about two farmers who met at the market on Monday. They were talking. One said, Brother, how did it go at church yesterday? Said, Oh, well, brother, said, All we're getting is ding dong, ding dong. And the other said, Well, brother, you need to praise God. The only thing we're getting is ding, ding, ding. <laughs> How would you rate us here? Pastor teacher is the only dual New Testament gift. And finding balance is a challenge for any pastor today. You need to know that for a pastor, Sunday comes every four days. This is an indispensable area in evaluating a candidate. But understand this. Believe this. You never grow a young pastor through criticism. 
any more than you grow a child through criticism. I want to go on record as telling you this. When I came to this church in my early to mid-30s a while ago, it was the affirmation and the love of several people who kept me at it. I don't know if you realize it or not, but this can be a very intimidating place. It certainly was for a young pastor coming out of a rural environment. Again, I want you to know this. Dr. Lester Pipkin, by his very presence, if you knew him, could be intimidating. We met at the gym on a Saturday night, and some of you were there, and it was in July, and we had dinner, and then we had a question and answer time. In July, it was a hot dinner, to be sure. And I could tell you that the question and answer time was plenty hot. When the deacons opened up the floor for a question and answer, guess who stood first? Dr. Lester Pipkin. He looked eight foot tall to me. Always had that tie on. That, you, know, you know, Doc, many of you did. And he asked the very first question. I thought, that is a good start. Honey, run and start the car. We are out of here. I had been here just a few months when after the evening service, Doc came to me very tenderly and he said, Pastor, may we speak? I said, certainly we may speak. And uh, we went in the back of the old church where the little office was, little two rooms back there. Let me tell you, Dr. Lester Pipkin did not speak down to me he did not in any way assume a tone of superiority or you need to get with it. None of that. Very tenderly, as a grandfather, he said to me tonight, Pastor, in your message you used a certain word. And he told me what that word was. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I, I did do that. He didn't come to that word until 10 minutes. I knew for 10 minutes something was coming, but I didn't know what pastor when I was a young pastor up in Minnesota and when we we and I thought you know I may be from the country but I'm not this kind of that country something is coming and he finally got to that he said that word that you use you know that's not really a word <laughs> well that's a great beginning isn't it the word you just used is not a real word <laughs> you know uh, there's a time in my life when I was said, well, it is now. <laughs> but I loved him, and I thank God for him. You want to know what that word was? Anybody want to know? Do three people want to know? I'm at the other end of the spectrum now. I don't remember. <laughs> the word was irregardless. Now, the English teachers are going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, irregardless of what anybody says, <laughs> and by the way, this is a demanding church, and I thank God for that, but I was discipled, and I was loved, and I was cared for among many, many mistakes I've made here. You don't grow a preacher through criticism. You don't disciple a young pastor.
by going behind his back and talking to others. He's going to make some mistakes, I promise you. Let's move on for just a moment. Uh, What about expressive worship? Do we express ourselves verbally and emotionally in worship? Is there freedom to express oneself? Now, my generation, we grew up, amen, amen. The younger generation expressed uh, worship in a number of ways. One's clapping, right? We do that here. I'm not distracted by that at all. However, we don't clap at the Lord's Supper. Uh, We have figured out that expressive worship. And by the way, I watched you this morning as Matthew was encouraging you to clap. I was watching you. You know what some of you did? Some of you went. (laughs) But you know what? If that's your personality, go for it. You know? And you too, Joel. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you're a clapper or not, whether you're a, a hand raiser or not, folks, there need to be freedom in worship. In keeping with your background and your personality and your... Well, pastor, you are opening the door for extremes. Aren't you afraid that things will get out of hand here? I will tell you this. I'd rather tone down a fanatic than try to resurrect a corpse. I read a report uh, of a certain basketball game, and this was what it said. The hometown crowd gave the visiting team the emotional feedback of a wax museum. (laughs) That's the way it is in some places. You say, well, pastor, this is not a basketball game. Get a life. We should strive for balance. We should pray for balance. There's a Max Lucado uh, quote there in your listening guide. Emotion without knowledge is as dangerous as knowledge without emotion. Warren Wiersbe talks about preaching in a Baptist church marked by unusual freedom and worship. He inquired about it and the pastor said, uh, we used to be inhibited, now we are inhabited. How are we doing? How are we doing? Freedom of expression. How about the area of action or application? Are we as worshipers, as speakers, as listeners, inspired and encouraged to, to action, uh, to live out our faith, to grow and to take action during the week? Are we encouraged in that way? Some people have said, well, pastor, you need to give an altar call every Sunday. Some say you need to give an altar call more often. Understand a couple of things. Be very careful about how you evaluate a candidate on the basis of the way he concludes his sermon. The first is there's a difference between an invitation and an altar call. The pastor will give you liberty to worship according to your personality. And it's important that you give him the privilege 
of preaching, giving invitations according to his personality. Okay? Don't evaluate. Don't evaluate on this basis. I promise you, I understand the culture. And I will say to you, and I often say in 101, I wish I were more effective in giving invitations. I wish I were. I wish I were. It's an area in which I've endeavored to grow. But don't evaluate on the basis of some external at any point in the service. I have never been greatly concerned about what happens at the end of a service, but I continually am vitally concerned about what happens first in here and then what happens out there because of the fact you have worshipped at faith on Sunday. I'm concerned how you're taking care of each other during the week. One of the key statements in this entire passage is the last line of verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The message says, and all the people listened. They were all ears. Don't run past that. Listening is hearing with understanding, clarity, purpose. That's why Jesus said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Folks, listening is an art. Worship and effective listening requires careful preparation. Now, hear me, hear me well. The prevailing idea is that preaching is monologue. It's a one-way street. That leading music and leading worship is monologue. It is something that we professionals are privileged to do week after week after week. And the effectiveness and the success of a service rests squarely upon the professionals and the volunteers on the platform. The expectation is week by week that the musicians and the speakers and the preacher that they are going to prepare. A rural West Virginia cliche is, uh, y'all pray for us, we ain't practiced much. And my, my question was always through the years, well, why ain't you practiced much? We're worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you aware that during the Reformation in Germany, the church met during the week to practice their congregational singing for the next Sunday? Can you imagine Matthew saying, now, folks, we're going to meet this, remember, this coming Tuesday, 6 o'clock, we're going to come, and 90% of you show up to practice the congregational music. He would faint. You'd, be, you'd, be, you'd have two or three search teams going on here, right? <laughs> you expect professionals to prepare. But why is there so little or no emphasis upon the role of the congregation in worship? The audience is often just passive spectators. Your preparation and active participation in the service is just as vital as the preparation of the pastor or the music team. The Watergate congregation teaches us that preaching is not monologue, it's dialogue. One of my great goals in ministry was to preach in a black church. The brethren are famous for their interaction with preaching. 
enlivening the preacher. I had to travel 10,000 miles to do that. I had the privilege of preaching one Sunday in a church in Nairobi, Kenya. Oh, listen, they celebrated. (laughs) I preached Jesus. I celebrated a little bit myself. Okay. (laughs) Oh, it was fun. Oh, it was fun. Let me tell you, let me commend you. This is one of the easiest places a guy will ever preach is here. My problem is, is I can't hear everything that's going on. I would get home and Mary says, boy, did you? Really? <laughs> you know, if it wasn't for Cormie, I'd been dead in the aisle years ago. Okay. <laughs> you know, but you're very expressive and I commend you for that. And I encourage you to hold on to that as a value. One of my former professors, Dr. Haddon Robinson, is one of the leading authorities on preaching and worship in the church today. Dr. Robinson is now in his 80s, and he is grappling with Parkinson's disease. Some years ago, Time Magazine recognized him as one of the 12 most effective preachers in the world. He said this. Someone interviewed him. The interviewer said, you know, we often think that the sermon depends on the person in the pulpit, the preparation, the delivery, and the content. But I suspect a great deal depends on the men and women in the pew. Is there anything we can do to make the experience more profitable for us? Dr. Robinson, when you think about it, it takes two to make a sermon. It not only takes the person in the pulpit, it takes the folks in the pew. There's a myth abroad that great preachers make great churches. But the truth is great churches make great preachers. And the quality of preaching is much affected by the quality of listening. I think many people go to church, he says, and it's kind of a passive experience. They sort of sit back and let the preacher do the work. But unless they come to that experience and enter into it, they don't get a whole lot out of it. And it's amazing what that can do for a preacher to have a congregation that is engaged in listening closely to what is being said. Let me again thank you. Let me thank you. Another contemporary preacher and writer has written a book that is required reading for entrance into heaven. The third chapter is a masterpiece. A consumer's guide to preaching. That third chapter is titled Preparing for Preaching. Here's some suggestions. Let me just run by them quickly. The first suggestion is adequate sleep. Here's what he says. One of the standard objections to preaching is that, quote, preachers put me to sleep. Usually the opposite is true. Listeners put themselves to sleep. Those who get adequate rest the night before rarely go to sleep on Sunday. Folks, you should go to bed on Saturday night at least as early as you do when you're going to school or to work, perhaps even earlier. If you stay up till midnight or after, don't expect much on Sunday morning. If you stay up till 3 a.m. watching video games or delayed football games or whatever, you have pastor's permission not to show up. This day in bed. If you take medication that makes you sleepy, you know, there are some medications. It's a phenomenon. When your uh, backside touches the chair, your eyes close. That's an amazing thing. 
hey, listen, come on. I'll speak as quietly as I can. (laughs) Hey, come on. Okay, don't be conscious of that. Don't do what one brother in one church I pastored, though. He waited until he got in church to clip his nails. And he had big, thick nails. And I'm speaking in clunk, 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 clunk. And you know, they were fast-growing nails, too. (laughs) Adequate sleep. How are we doing? Second, quickly, get ready on time. He says, one's frame of mind may be set against listening by the hurrying and rush of getting to church on time. Blustering in at the last minute after a mad dash through traffic is all it takes to unsettle a family for the remainder of the service. To add to that, a battle between husband and wife, parents and children, or all of the above, over someone lagging behind and making the rest late, and you have all the ingredients of a nasty stew. Stewing pew sitters are poor listeners. Let me encourage you. This is an area that need to be addressed. Coming in and preparing mentally, emotionally. I see folks come in and sit down and, and you're, you're looking at the listening guide and you're, you're reading the passage. You, you really need to address this. Clothes should be laid out on Saturday night. I lay my clothes out on Saturday night. I do that. And... Uh, on Sunday morning, Mary lays out other clothes for me. Okay, I look. Okay, <laughs> routine is extremely important to me on Sunday, not only as a preacher but as a worshiper. Now I know I don't live in an ivory tower. Young families, I know. I know there are Sundays when you're just glad to be here. You know. Uh, you come through the door breathless and you're just trying to make sure you've got your own clothes on, okay? And uh, you look down and you've got jelly or you know, you've got Pop-Tarts, you know, and you reach in for something, get Pop-Tarts. <laughs> you know? Hey, I know all of that. I understand that. A couple more quickly, okay? Sufficient breakfast. We need to talk about that. Let's go on. Study ahead. When the pastor announces a series ahead of time or is preaching through a book of the Bible, you will find it advantageous to do some preliminary study of the passage from which he will preach. You often know uh, where I am going and where I have gone week in advance. I recommended a stellar a series, two volumes of books that will highlight every passage in the Bible. Brother Jim Jones and I have enjoyed this for a lot of years. Next two Sundays, by the way, we're in Joshua 1, 1 through 8. There's an inevitable disconnect when you find the sermon is from a passage that you haven't looked at in months or years. If the preacher spends 12 to 15 hours in that text and the listener hasn't spent 12 to 15 seconds in the text, what can we really expect? What are we giving the Holy Spirit to work with? Prayer. He says prayer for the congregation and for yourself is important. Time for such prayer might be appropriately found whenever it is that you are doing your preparation Study of the verses that will underlie the sermon.
regularity being here. Visiting Steve and Caroline Mann in Bristol, England, Steve suggested that we cross the bridge from Bristol over into Wales. Being somewhat an amateur historian, I was really excited. It wasn't the uh, beautiful sheep dotting the landscape. It wasn't the Roman ruins. It wasn't the medieval castles perched on the side of majestic mountains. It wasn't even lunch at Pizza Hut in Cardiff, uh, the capital. What excited me was that Wales has been the site, the location of some of the greatest revivals in church history over the last 150 years. I didn't expect to see the fires of revival still burning. I just wanted to see where it happened. The last revival in Wales was 1904-1905. It produced societal, spiritual, and political transformation. The coal industry was thrown into chaos because the donkeys that pulled rail carts out of the mines only understood commands laced with profanity. But so many of the miners were getting saved, the animals couldn't understand the new vocabulary. That's true. And during the great Welsh revival of 1859, a pastor was visiting a friend. I think, Pastor Johnson, he said, The ministers are all preaching a great deal better than they used to. Perhaps the people are hearing a great deal better than they used to. That may be, commented the pastor. But I think they are preaching a great deal better because the people are all praying for them. When the word of God is exalted in our lives and in the services, when Jesus is praised and magnified as Lord and Savior, and when the Holy Spirit envelops our worship, the preacher and listeners, our lives are transformed. Revival comes. All because of the word and our response to it.